the sermon series. All right. Oh, man, that's a tough to follow up. Uh, congrats to all the grads. It's crazy because uh, uh, my son Ezra, two and a half, he got to be a ring boy at a wedding yesterday. And Ryan was actually our ring boy. So he used to be like this big and now puberty awaits. So that is crazy. The day has come. Oh, he just went like the holy what I'm saying too. So, yeah, but so happy, so thankful. I, I always dreamed of the day where we'd have the need and the, the privilege to have a youth group. And so Peter June and the church, hopefully we can continue to just grow as a church and grow to be just a whole body of Christ in that way. If you're new or visiting, I want to welcome you. Uh, my name is Sam. Obviously, this is not our typical setup, uh, but obviously we meet at a high school. And so the next two weeks they have a play. So we'll be meeting in the cafeteria. So please join us then. But yeah, it's always a privilege to join and worship together. As you see, we are going to be celebrating the Lord's Supper. Please join us after lunch. It's a great opportunity to meet us and fellowship together as a church after worship. And those yellow handouts, book clubs, highly, highly encourage you and recommend if you don't have any plans or free time in the summer. Uh, yes, the topics are great, but more than anything else, we really believe when you just gather together as people in the church, new or tenured, member or not, and just share time together in fellowship in an intentional way, good things happen. And so highly, highly encourage you. Uh, I know all the people that will be hosting, they're all great brothers and sisters in Christ, so highly encourage you to sign up for that sooner than later. All right, well, getting into it, if you're just joining us, we've been going through a sermon series through the book of James, and if you've been here with us, we've been seeing week after week, uh, James is an extremely practical book. Uh, I love Pastor James. He was a pastor back in the church in the early days. Uh, if he had a church today, I would likely go there because he doesn't beat around the bush. Uh, he's not overly conceptual. He kind of gets to the nitty-gritty of the fact that the gospel, the good news of Christ, is not just uh, something that stays in your head or something you believe, but is fundamentally supposed to show. It is supposed to be lived out. It is supposed to be practiced in a tangible way. And he goes as far as to say, if there is no fruit or evidence of the gospel in your life, you might not actually believe the true gospel. And one thing we've been clearly seeing is that the main way and one primary arena that this gospel shows up is in the realm of relationships and community. Relationships and community. This is why I think James and the entire New Testament would find it very hard for a Christian to say, I'm a faithful Christian and be not involved in the community or a church. Because so much of what a Christian is, is the one another's of scripture, to love other Christians, to bear our burdens, to care for each other, to consider each other. And so with that context in mind, if you have your Bibles or programs, let's look at our text for today in James chapter 4. Uh, we're going to read from verse 1 to 10. I think it goes up to 12, but we're just going to stop at verse 10. And as we open God's word, we uh, at our church believe that God is living, speaking, and present. So can we all rise together as an act of worship as we read from God's living and holy word? So James chapter 4, starting from verse 1. This is the reading of God's word. What is the source of wars and fights among you? Don't they come from your passions that wage war within you? You desire and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and wage war. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and don't receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? So whoever wants to be the friend of the world becomes the enemy of God. Or do you think it's without reason that the scripture says the spirit he made to dwell in us envies intensely, but he gives greater grace and therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. 
Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. It's the reading of God's word. Let me pray for us briefly. Father, we pray that your spirit would speak mightily, clearly, and in a way that uh, will transform our hearts to really understand what it means to be humbled by your gospel and your good news and through the scripture. So be with us during this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. All right, so very quick icebreaker question, which is a rhetorical one, and I pr- pretty much know the answer, but have you ever experienced relational conflict with someone? And if you're being honest, the answer is obviously yes. Maybe it's a friend, maybe it's a coworker, a roommate, uh, a spouse, or someone at church. Maybe you're in conflict right now. Maybe you had a conflict this morning. Maybe it's with someone sitting here in this room, and you're sitting on opposite sides of the room for that reason. The point is... Unless you live your life on a deserted island in isolation, conflict, it's a shared human experience. It is an inevitability in life because one of the most foolproof equations is when you get a sinner and a sinner and you place them together, you will experience them sinning against each other. We will hurt one another. That's what it means to be fallen. And so time to time, because my job necessitates, I'll meet with someone to counsel them and they'll say, I have drama, or I'm not getting along with someone, or someone has beef with me, and I have an issue with them. And so I'll ask them, oh, interesting, what is the issue? And do you know what the issue is almost every time? In fact, even in your relational conflict now, I'm pretty sure I know what the issue is. It's them. (laughs) They're the problem. I hear page after page of how this person has wronged me, how this person has hurt me, why they're so selfish, why they're so inconsiderate. And if you talk to professional counselors that particularly deal with marriage and relationships, all of them will share this common thing, which is the most difficult, but probably the most important thing to accomplish if you're to make any progress in a conflict, is to get each person to stop blaming each other and take responsibility for their role in the conflict, no matter how small it is. Now, in the church that James was writing to, the dispersion of churches, there's a lot of fighting happening in the church. If you grew up in an Asian American church, particularly a Korean church, I grew up seeing church members fight all the time. <laughs> like, members' meetings was warfare. It was literally like mafia gangs fighting each other. And in the church, often where it's supposed to be the most peaceful, sometimes there's the most fighting and conflicts. And so what we see is James, he sees this happening amongst Christians, and he addresses it head on, and he diagnoses the issue right to the core. Look at verse 1. He starts by saying, what is the source of wars and fights among you? In other words, why, do you know why you guys are keep fighting? Do you know why you guys are keep getting into conflict with each other? Here's what he says. Don't they come from your passions that wage war within you? When you get into conflict with someone, isn't it so easy and so tempting to blame everything and everyone but yourself? James does not let you do that. He won't let you go there. Instead, he says, you know why you keep getting in fights? Married couple, roommate, friend? It's because there's something broken inside of you. That's what he's saying. He says, you got to look at your heart. And based on this text, I'm going to argue that the one common root issue in which all conflict-causing fruit comes out from, that James is going to argue, is pride. Pride. If you look at verse 6, he gives this very strong statement. He says, therefore, he says, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Now, pride, it's one of those things that's kind of hard to wrap our head around or really define because it's such a massive idea and it takes on so many forms. And it's such a subtle sin because rarely when you go into a community group or a small group and say, hey, what sin are you struggling with? Rarely does someone say, you know, I think I'm struggling with pride. But today we're going to dig into it, and we're going to see in the text today, James, he breaks down kind of three ways that pride shows up, 
in the life of a Christian, particularly, because that's who he's addressing. But all of these things are connected because they are all at the same root what pride is. So initially, these points may seem random. They might seem isolated. But keep in mind, he is talking about all of these things with the same root of pride. And so what are these things he talks about? First, we'll see he says that pride, it's selfish in nature. Secondly, we'll see that pride, it is prayerless in nature. Third, this is a hard-hitting one, he says pride, it's infidelity. Okay, it's a nice way of saying it's basically adultery. And then all of those things described, as we're convicted, Lord willing, by the Spirit, we'll see, well, what do we do about this? Is there a cure for this pride? So first, pride is selfish. So I'm a father of two young boys, two and a half year old and almost one year old, and they are starting to wage war with each other. They are starting to fight a lot. And I just know it's going to get worse and worse and worse. And the cause of the fight is always the same thing. Ezra, my first, wants something, and Zach gets in the way of him getting what he wants, or vice versa. Now, that's such a basic elementary example of two kids fighting over what they want, but James basically says that right there, that's the cause of almost every quarrel and fight. That's what he says. Look in verse 1. He says, it comes from your passions that wage war within you, and the reason you fight is you desire and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. As if I could put it bluntly, James says the reason you keep getting into fights with people is because we are selfish. That's what he says. We are selfish people. And that is such a strike to our ego. You know, sometimes when I talk to someone, the last thing I want to be called is selfish. But that's what James is saying. He's saying, you want something, and the person is either not giving it to you, or they're getting in the way of you getting it. So you know what you do? You lash out. You wage war, according to this text. Now, what is this want and desire? Let's, let's dig into it a little bit. The word he uses for the passion or the desires with you is this word hedone, which is where we get the idea of hedonism. If you don't know what hedonism is, basically the idea that your greatest priority and concern in life is to please yourself. Hedonism. That's what hedonism is. In other words, to be a selfish, prideful person is the most important thing in your life is your comfort, your plans, your convenience, your well-being. And so James says, yeah, if you put a room full of prideful, selfish people who are clearly just concerned about themselves, they're going to fight. That's what he's saying. They're going to have warfare with each other. Now, why is selfishness such a relational killer? Why does it cause so many problems in relationships? There's a book, this is not original to me, but I, I found it very helpful. There's a book called The Splendor in the Ordinary by an author named Thomas Howard. And looking at this, he basically says there's basically two ways to live. Okay? The first way is summed up by this statement. My life for yours. In other words, my priority in life is to consider your needs above my own and to give my life for yours. The second way is described this way. My life for me. In other words, I am my own. There's two ways to live. Very simple. And he says, if you were to summarize what the basic principle of the community in hell is, it is that second way. I am my own. And communal relationships live or die based on which way you choose to operate, not only in a conceptual level, but in the nitty-gritty hundreds of decisions you make on a daily basis. For example, if you and I are friends and we are in a relationship, if 100 out of 100 times I choose my life for me, I am my own, very likely we do not have a relationship. But say you're going through something. 
You're going through a tough time. You're struggling. And I decide, you know, in this moment, I want to operate for my life for yours. Even though I have every right to do my own thing and just rest because I'm tired, I want to forego myself so that I can serve you. So I bring you food. I pray for you. I spend time with you. And then in that moment, what happens typically is you'll probably have a sense of gratitude. Because what, what have I done? I have now given you some of myself. And so what Pastor, um, I, I give credit to Pastor Tim Keller for this. I found it very insightful. He basically says, when you live with a my life for yours mentality, what happens is there's an exchange of gratitude. Because I have not done that for you, you basically say verbally or non-verbally, thank you. And he says, that's how community is created. That's what community is. And he looks at this and he says, when you die to yourself to love someone and they say thank you, essentially what is happening now is there's now a bond of community where they're saying, you know what, I owe you. And I acknowledge it gratefully. Not in this I'm going to pay you back kind of way, but now we are mutually bonded in this love and service. And so with that idea, he gives such a pointed description of what community in heaven and hell is. He says, you know what heavenly community is? He says, in heaven, everyone lives with my life for yours. No one is independent. Everyone is joyfully serving and saying thank you. And as a result, everyone's getting happier and happier and happier. On the flip side, he says, you know hell? You know what hell is? Hell is a place where everyone says, I don't ask you for anything and don't ask me for anything. And it's the loneliest place in the universe. So let's give a moment to reflect then. Which way have you been living these days? The principle of heaven or hell. In the hundreds of small relational decisions you are given, how often do you choose the my life for me? If you find yourself constantly getting in conflict or finding your heart filled perpetually with anger and bitterness towards others while taking little to no responsibility, it could be a sign that you struggle with pride. So what are we supposed to do with our desires then? Like, are you saying, Pastor, it's bad for me to have a desire to want to feel affirmed or acknowledged by my friend or spouse? Or is it wrong to get upset and angry if I want to feel respected and someone slights me or talks behind my back? Is that, is that wrong? And I would say, no, I don't think that's what's wrong. I don't think James is saying desires themselves are bad. It's what we do with those desires and how we respond to them, which leads to point number two. Pride is not only selfish, it is prayerless in nature. Now, this point might seem so random, and disconnected. But after meditating on this, I think there is a strong correlation between a prideful person and how little they pray. Look at verse 2. It says, You desire and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and wage war. You do not have because you do not ask. James is saying, you have these internal desires and you lash out because you're not getting what you want. But the reason you're not getting your desires is because you're not asking for them. Sounds simple enough, right? Now, what might this look like practically? Let's use the universal desire we have as humans to feel accepted. Okay? It's, it's surprising to me how so many people, the primary reason they feel hurt by the church community is that they feel excluded. I feel like I'm not belonged. Or vice versa. One of the most gratifying feelings is the feeling of acceptance, right? We all feel that. And when we feel excluded, we get angry, we talk bad, we get upset. So using this example, James would say, look, say you want to feel accepted and you feel excluded. So you get angry. You get cold. You get bitter. And he's saying, the people are not giving what you want, so you cannot help but get angry and lash out. But he says, you know the real reason you're not getting what you want, that feeling of acceptance? 
Because you're not praying. That's what he's saying. You're not praying and turning to the source that's actually going to give you what you need and what you want. You are pridefully trying to take matters into your own hands. Now, that's just one example, but it can really be anything and everything. The point James is trying to make is if there is a Christian who does not regularly place his desires and requests before God, as Paul says in Philippians 4, 6, right? He says, every situation by prayer, present your request to God. He's saying to not do that, something is really, really wrong. The way this plays out for me, um, obviously my household is very tiring, right? I have two young toddlers, like I mentioned. So when I'm angry and frustrated with my kids or in marriage, when I just want to feel acknowledged and I'm not getting it from my family, when I'm feeling rejected because something I said is not heard, I, I can easily get bitter. I can easily get angry. I can easily turn cold. But you know what I do in those moments these days? As I'm doing dishes, I'll say like, Lord, I want to feel acknowledged. <laughs> can you help me feel acknowledged right now? Sometimes, uh, my wife Angela will tell you, sometimes when Ezra and they're going crazy and they're doing things like that's going to really hurt themselves and I'm going nuts, usually I'll get really angry. You know what I say now? I'll just say like, Lord, help me. Help me to be loving. Help me to be patient. In other words, on a daily basis with all the desires we have that are not met, how can we go without praying? That's what James would say. How can you possibly go without asking God for help? And so for some of us, the sheer lack of prayer towards God in our lives reveals our pride. That we really think we can get through life and figure things out without any of God's help. So one side of the coin is we don't pray. But he further, he said, well, what if you do pray and God doesn't seem to give you what you want? Well, that's the second side of the coin in verse 3. He says, well, some you don't get because you don't ask. But others of you, you ask and don't receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. So diagnosis question number one is, do you pray? Diagnosis number two is, if you do pray, what do you actually pray for? What do you actually pray for? So one of the things we do as a pastoral staff is we do visitations with our members. We try our best to meet every member at least once a year because we have about 160 members and there's two pastors. So Tom and I, we're meeting lots and lots of people. And we do that because we want to check in, see how things are going. And one question we'll always ask is, do you have any prayer requests? Can we be praying for you? And most of the times, people will say similar things. They'll say, you know, yeah, I do have prayer requests. Can you pray that I get that job? Can you pray that, like, my situation gets handled? Can you pray uh, for that issue I have? Can you pray for my health? Can you pray for my relationship? Can you pray for my family? All good things. Don't get me wrong. But if you kind of take a step back, do you remember how the Lord taught us to pray? The Lord's Prayer. Is not the primary thing that Jesus taught us to be preoccupied by in prayer is that we deeply care about God's name being honored, God's will being done, and God's kingdom to come? I was so humbled. I came across this litmus test quote the other day. Answer this, okay? If all of your prayers were answered right now today, who would be impacted other than you? All the prayers you have answered right now in this moment, would your life elevate and nothing else changes? Now, it's especially telling when we ask for prayer requests, and sometimes we'll have some people, they'll think about it, and they'll say, you know, actually, I'm good. I don't need any prayer right now. Now, in one sense, it's like, oh, that could mean one of two things. One, that your concerns and preoccupation is so solely about you 
that because your life seems to be going okay right now, you don't need God. Or secondly, you think that you have what it takes to take care of life without depending on God. And James would say, that's so prideful. It's so prideful. One of our newer members, I did a visitation with him, and I asked, hey, can I, can I pray for you? And I was so encouraged because I was expecting the, you know, can you pray for this, me, 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 me. And again, please don't, like, next time we visit you, don't say it's like, Pastor, can you pray for the, the nations and, like, missions? Like, don't do that. That's, don't be fake about it, okay? I'm just making a point. But he, he said, I have three prayer requests. I have this brother, my coworker. he's not a believer. I'm trying to evangelize him. Can you pray for salvation? Can you pray that Grace Hill can grow to be a place that's really mature in our faith? I was like, oh my goodness. That's what prayer is. And we've reduced it to such a prideful, selfish tool to use God. And James says, when you pray with that, for God to finance your your pride and to finance your hedonism, God's not going to do that. He has no investment and interest in helping you build your kingdom apart from his. So some of us, if your prayers are going unanswered, you have to check, well, what is it really for? Now, what does it actually look like practically? Let's get specific. So say you're experiencing relational conflict in your family or your friends or your marriage, and it's really taking a toll on you, okay? And you are just tired of the fighting. You guys know that feeling? Like, I don't want to argue. I'm so sick of time. I'm an Enneagram 9. I love harmony, even if it's fabricated. I love peace. I don't want conflict. So I understand that feeling, okay? And you're just fighting, fighting, fighting. And you know what? Oh, I just turn to God. So you pray to God and you say, God, please, can you just bring peace in my household, peace in this relationship? Because I don't want to deal with this anymore. I don't like feeling stressed all the time. Now, it sounds like a good prayer, innocent enough. But let's really dig into the motive of that prayer. What you want and what you are asking God is I have a desire to not be stressed anymore, God. So can you give me my desire to be comfortable? You want peace not for peace's sake. You want your comfort. And that's still selfish in nature. The main thing we should pray, I think according to the scripture in that situation, is God, there's brokenness in my marriage, in my household. Would you bring peace because that's what honors Christ? We fail in reflecting your love to one another and bringing you glory in this brokenness. So can you help me to love and bring peace? There's a lot more that can be said here, but as the second layer of pride, a life of prayerlessness or completely self-centered prayers. So how's your prayer life these days? Direct correlation to pride welling up in our hearts. Now third, so a prideful person has unchecked selfishness and lives a life with little to no prayer. Now James goes zero to 100 is in his third description. Pride is infidelity, which is a very nice way to say pride is adultery. That's basically what he says. Now up to this point in the book, as hard-hitting as James is, he's been very gracious in how he addresses the Christians, right? In chapter 1, brothers and sisters considered a great joy, which we saw earlier for, I think it was uh, Edwin Isaiah put that verse up. Chapter 2, brothers and sisters, do not show partiality. Chapter 3, brothers and sisters, be careful what you say with the tongue. But in chapter 4, verse 4, a, a train just slams in, a bomb just drops, and he says, no longer brothers and sisters, he says, you adulterous people, adulterous people, which is actually an inaccurate translation. The literal word there, it's not adulterous people, which is this gender-neutral thing. It's adulteresses. 
So what he's doing is he's pointing to an Old Testament image that's seen throughout the Old Testament where God pictures himself as the way I relate to my people is I am the husband and my people are the wife. The church is my wife. In other words, to put it literally, James is calling all these people, you are unfaithful wives. That's what he's saying. And by extension today, he would say that to us. You are adulteresses. Now, why so serious, James? Remember, James is addressing a congregation of Christians, maybe not too unlike our own, where people have grown spiritually complacent. Give me a a, a wicked, wretched sinner who understands the plight that they're in. I will pastor them any day of the week. It is so hard to pastor a complacent Christian. So hardened are the hearts of these people. And so what James realizes is for those those people, complacent Christians, apathetic Christians, it's not enough to just say God loves you or God has a plan for you. You kind of have to shake them and wake them out of complacency. And so that's what he's doing here. He's saying, you adulterers, you cheaters. Because what is he seeing? He's seeing week after week, these Christians are falling into worldly, selfish, sinful behavior. And that's not the problem, okay? We are all broken. But there is normalized. Like, there is no sense of hurt conscience before the Lord. There's no sense of repentance. They're living as everything is fine. And so he takes it back and draws a line in the sand in verse 4 to 5, which is an apt word for us. Look what he says. Don't you know, friendship with the world is hostility towards God. So whoever wants to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. He's making it very, very clear here for us today, Christian. Now, when he talks about friendship with the world, it could be a sermon in itself. Obviously, he's not saying you can't have non-Christian friends. He's not saying just be with church people. The world, almost always in the scriptures, is referring to the lifestyle, the beliefs, and the values apart from God that this world embraces. Values such as self-indulgence, such as self-sufficiency and independence, or wealth as the greatest source of joy in life. Now, if you, if you grew up in a Christian church or context like myself, worldliness is usually caricatured as this, like, evil, explicitly sinful culture, right? So I know, like, whenever I ask my parents, like, what is worldliness? You know what they would say is, you know what worldliness is? It's a Las Vegas. That's what they would say. Sin City, right? All the drinking, the smoking, the partying, and the, the sexual immorality, that's worldliness. And so you would think, oh, that's so far removed from Orange County. Like, we'll never be like that. So, if, of course, if that's worldliness, you're always going to be prideful and think, I, mean, I ain't that worldly. But I would argue that's just symptoms. Those are symptoms of a deeper root of what worldliness actually is. Because some of you in here can be living far more worldly than even the vilest of sinners in Las Vegas. So what is that? Worldliness at its bare bones. Let me put it very simply for you here. It is to think and live in a manner that excludes God. That's it. Think and live in a manner that excludes God. To put it another way, friendship with the world means buying into the belief that I can find pleasure and joy outside of God rather than living to find pleasure in God. That's what it's talking about. Now, I know we live in a culture and context where things like open relationships are becoming more and more normal and accepted. I find that to be very interesting now, if you don't know what an open relationship is, it's basically where, like, both partners agree, like, we're okay not being exclusive. Like, you can have other lovers. You can have other romantic partners. Now, let's not miss the gravity of what James is saying here because he's not mincing words. The God of Scripture, he's not into open relationships, okay? Let's make that very, very clear. 
I think verse 4 and 5 show that. Either you are a friend of God, an enemy of the world, or you are an enemy of God and a friend of the world. In other words, you are either married and committed to God, or you're not. He's being very black and white here. Now, how does this not seem rigid? How does this not seem like Bible bashy? How does this not seem like fire and brimstone? It's all in verse 5. Verse 5, it says, basically, if I can translate it for you, he includes this interesting tidbit. He says, do you not realize that God is an intensely jealous God? That's basically what he's saying. Okay. Now, jealousy, it is this neutral thing that can be really good or really bad. But one thing I think we can all agree with, it's jealousy. It is a necessary byproduct and fruit of true love, genuine love. One of the ways I knew I started to like my now wife, Angela, because we were friends for a very, very long time. The way I knew I started to like her was I would start to notice and care when other guys would talk to her. When I was just friends with her, it didn't matter if a guy hugged her. It didn't matter if she was reading texts and emails from other guys. I'd be like, that's cool. Maybe you can marry him one day. But one day, I just found this weird emotion welling up in my heart where when someone would talk to her, I would, like, get in the way. I'd find ways for her to be in my car so she didn't have to be in someone else's car. When her phone would go, like, boom, and I would see the name of another guy, I'd be rage-filled for some reason. I would get angry. I would want to fight him. And I'm like, what is this feeling? And you know what it is? It's the byproduct of my growing love for her. It's called jealousy because I care. Paul Copeland, he wrote a book called Is God a Moral Monster? He talks about jealousy in the context of a relationship like this. And I quote, A wife who doesn't get jealous or angry when another woman is flirting with her husband is not really committed to the marriage relationship. Outrage, pain, and anguish, these are appropriate responses to deep violation. God is not some abstract entity or impersonal principle. We should be amazed that the creator of the universe would so deeply connect himself to human beings that he would open himself to sorrow and anguish in the face of human rejection and betrayal. It is much easier to not care and therefore detach what, what someone does, is it not? I've actually heard people say that in the context of dating relationship. The moment they're about to detach and stop caring about them, that's actually what they say. I don't care what they do. They can do whatever they want. Their life is theirs. It doesn't affect me. For you to let it affect you means you love them. You guys understand that. Right? If you're a Christian sitting here today, do you realize when you live and act as if God does not exist, a.k.a. worldly living, it doesn't just check the I sinned list. It's not just something to confess. But there is a husband who just found out his wife is cheating on him. That's what James is saying. That's what James is saying. The problem with a context like ours is where so many of us, we've been so churched, many of us, We've been so desensitized to the weight of our habitual sins. And I get it. We go through this endless routine of confessing and going to church and then falling away for a little bit and then coming back. And then, then we all through that, what we lose is the fact that God is a real, personal, jealous God. It's not just this detached deity that wants your mindless religious duties, but he wants to be in an intimate relationship so up to this point, James has been trying to expose and to shatter pride and to unearth it from below, which leads to the fourth. If we are guilty or if any one of these applies to us, what do we do with it? What's the cure? Number four. Well, obviously, if pride is the problem, then the solution must be what? Humility, right? Two sides of the coin. Verse 6 and 10, the bookends, he says, Therefore God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble, and therefore humble yourselves before the Lord. And verse 6 all the way to verse 10 are 
back-to-back imperative that James gives of what does it look like to humble yourself, I'm going to distill it and consolidate to three practical things of how do we actually humble ourselves before God? What does it actually look like? First, he says, you want to humble yourself before God, you have to holistically submit to him. Okay, now I know submit, it's a loaded term. But the best way I can describe what submission to God means, it means to order our lives around God's authority and will. Order our lives. It means that we are relinquishing control and trust, that God knows what he's talking about. So when we open his scriptures and it says something that is hard to embrace or something that you have a hard time agreeing with, in that warfare you have, you lean towards God. Why? Because I'm submitted to his authority. I trust him. I believe he knows what he's talking about. Now, the key word that I caveat is holistically, because I firmly believe most of us here, we have no problem submitting parts of our lives to God. It's the parts you don't that pride is going to fester. It's a holistic submission that not just part of life, but all of life, which is one of our mission and visions here at our church. So one is holistically submitting to God. Second, because it's just so blatant in the text, to humble yourself means you have to repent genuinely. Did you read verse 8 and 9? It is in your face heavy hitting. Look what it says. Cleanse your hands, sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable, mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Happy Sunday. <laughs> like, could you imagine? That's, that's what the Bible is telling us. Stop laughing. That's what it's saying. Like, grieve a little bit. Like, feel the weight of your sin. That's what James is saying. Now, why would he feel the need to say that unless people have forgotten the nature of what sin actually is before a holy God? Again, it makes complete sense when you consider the context. Like, if I got a speeding ticket on the way to church, and you saw me in the corner over there weeping, you'd be like, what is wrong with you? I'd be like, I got a speeding ticket. My life is over. So weird. Why? Because number one, I don't have a relationship with the officer. Like, I haven't wronged somebody. It's not a big deal. I could just pay it. So the, the context doesn't match my response. Right? It's not a big deal. But if I committed adultery and cheated on my wife, Angela, and I, gra- I, look, I get this is heavy language I'm using, but that's what James is saying. If I cheated on Angela and I had the same emotional response as if I just got a speeding ticket, wouldn't you be like, hey, that's kind of weird. Like you're treating this as some impersonal fine that you just got to pay off on a Sunday, but somebody is wronged. Somebody is hurt. Somebody is grieving. I, I, I dare not come up to my, my, my wife and my, who I love and who I have committed this grave sin against and say, my bad. I'm sorry. That's where this language is coming from. Cleanse yourself. Purify your hearts. Repent earnestly. Let there be mourning over it because that is what has happened And God wants a genuine relationship. He doesn't want a fabricated religious one. And sometimes you need to earnestly feel when you turn back. And that's what he's saying. Make things right with God, not in a salvific sense, but in a relational restorative sense. And third and finally, he says to draw near to God. And this is one of the most beautiful things about this text as we close. Obviously, the last thing you want to do when you feel far from God or guilty is to draw near to him. But that is the call to humble yourself. And notice the beauty of this invitation. It doesn't say draw near to God so that he can forgive you. It doesn't say draw near to God so that he can save you or rescue you. It says draw near to God because he wants to draw near to you. 
it carries the idea that what God wants with you more than anything else is to be near you. And it pains him because all the sin and worldliness prevents that from happening. And as you draw near to him, it echoes the image and story of the prodigal son where as soon as you turn your shoulder, God's already sprinting. Because he's been waiting this whole time for you to look towards him. That's the good news of the gospel in a nutshell. I purposely didn't mention the first part of verse 6. Now think about it. Say you are the spouse that has been betrayed. You are the spouse that has been cheated on. You are the spouse that has been ignored. And you've been stomped upon and trampled upon. And let's say the offender comes to you. What would you want to give them? i tell you what I want to give them. I want to give them a piece of my mind. I want to give them judgment. I want to give them anger, bitterness. At the very least, I want to give them recompense and retribution. But what does verse 6 say? After describing all the offense that we have given towards God, it says, what is God going to give you, though? Verse 6, it says, I don't know about you. This is mind-blowing. What does it say? But he gives greater grace. Isn't that insane? That God's response and what he gives to the vilest of sins against him is not just grace, but it is greater grace. Why the emphasis on greater? Because some of you feel like your struggle with sin is too great for you to handle or to be forgiven. And God says, it is great, but grace is greater. Some of you in your relationships and your marriage, you think there's no hope. It's hopeless. I I feel utterly like there's nothing's going to be better. And God says, you know what? It is great, but my grace is greater. Grace is greater always than your greatest sin and struggle. And it is readily available for those who what? Would humble themselves. So easy to do. God, I need you. Can't do this on my own. And so what better ways to humbly draw near to God than what we're about to do right now, which is the Lord's table. So let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you that you are a gracious God. We thank you that you care enough to attach yourself so deeply and intimately with your people that you allow yourself to be grieved, to feel pain when we turn towards the world and away from you. Help us to feel that, God, not so that we can be guilty in our sin, but so that we could understand that life without you, it is hopeless and helpless. Humble us, God, by the beauty of your gospel. In Jesus' name we pray.